we are trucking it. We are heading quickly to the book of Revelation. So I know a lot of you are excited. Some of you are like, I have no idea what that's about. I can tell you the first time I read it, I was really creeped out by it. I was sitting in a deer stand, and I was reading Revelation going, what, a dragon and a woman and this city of Babylon? And I didn't know how to make sense of any of it until I realized that the book of Revelation is the singular revelation, not revelations, but the singular revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, so we're going to unpack that here in the next season of life. Uh, But before we get there, there's this little letter called Jude. So as we begin this letter, the the main theme of of the letter of Jude is to, for the believer, contending for the faith. Now, if you've been in church culture, this does not mean fight with other believers about the faith. This means contend for the faith that we have in Jesus because there are people that will come along and seem to have the same faith that you do, and they won't. And so we'll unpack that idea here in a minute. But the main theme can be found in verse 3 of Jude. I'd say in chapter 1, but it's only one chapter. But it says there, Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. So the letter is written by a man by the name of Jude. And it's not, hey Jude, from the Beatles song. This is actually a man that was related, at least a stepbrother of Jesus. And so we have Jude... And he calls himself, in verse 1, he says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Interestingly enough, if I was going to write a letter to Christian believers, and I was a half-brother of the Son of God, who we all claim to follow, the first thing that I would say, that's why I didn't get to writing in the New Testament, is, hey, I'm a brother of Jesus. But he doesn't. He calls himself a bondslave of Jesus Christ. A bond slave was a servant that was not a sl- slave that was forced into labor, but a slave that actually chose to be under the servitude of someone who had treated them so well as a slave when they owed money. So in that culture, if you owed somebody enough money, you didn't just get to like get three jobs and try to pay it back. You would actually get to a point where it'd be so much, there was no chapter 13 bankruptcy. You would say, hey, I owe so much money, I can't pay you back. It's never going to happen. Not in three lifetimes, not in four. So instead, I'm going to give my life to you to serve you until you feel like my debt is paid and there will be an agreement. And after that servitude was over, you could go back to living life as you knew it. But many times, there would be enough wisdom in the person that had been humbled through this debt crisis that they would say, you know what? I don't really know how to manage my own life. And that's okay, because this guy that I've been serving has treated me so much better than I ever treated myself. I'm going to indenture myself as a slave for the rest of my life to live in his house and to serve his purposes. And he'll feed me. I don't have to manage any money, but I'll serve him. And so they would take that servant, that slave, to the post of the front porch. They'd put his ear on the doorpost And they would take an awl and put a hole in there and he would wear a gold ring in his ear. And that would be a sign, an outward sign to the rest of the people that knew him that I'm this man's indentured servant, a free will bond slave, 
I'm a slave because I want to be. And as believers, really, if you see yourself as anything other than a free will bond slave of Jesus Christ, you're missing it. Because that is my story. That is your story if you are in Christ. That, that I owed a debt that I could not pay. My Savior has paid the debt that I owed, though he didn't have to. And now, I don't have to do anything for Jesus. But I want to because he's treated me so much better than I ever treated myself. You might look at it as, he's treated me better than anybody else has ever treated me. But think about your life before Christ. How well did you treat yourself? You know, everybody's always talking about treat yourself. When I treat myself, I overeat. When I treat myself, I don't get enough sleep. When I treat myself, I get into a lot of trouble because I do whatever my flesh tells me will feel good. But in the long run, I end up with acid reflux. I end up losing this thing right here. And I also end up indebted. I, I end up in over my head, literally. And so the Lord is so gracious as a good shepherd to lead us into still waters, to, to lead us in the ways of, in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. And then he gets the glory. And you know what happens? When we lay down our life and give it up, we actually get to keep it eternally instead of holding it to ourselves and saying, you know, I want to be Lord instead. He said, if you want to keep your life, you'll actually lose it eternally. And it's kind of interesting if you think about it because, you know, I heard somebody say the other day, um, you know, why does church have to be on Sunday? That's the day that I have stuff to do. Well, of course it is because every day you got stuff to do, right? We've all got to-do lists. Maybe you're not a list person, but you got stuff that needs to be done. But it's kind of odd that we look at it that way because the reality is we have stuff to do on Sunday because we planned it on Sunday. Nobody forced us at gunpoint, you have to do this. We get to choose. More than any other nation in the world, we have the freedom to choose what we do with our time. So the question is, why are you planning things to do when you need to be in the house of the Lord to get refreshed? God said on, on the six days, you could work. You should work. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's actually what scripture says. But on the seventh day, he said, rest. And he didn't just say it. God the Father in creation created for six whole days. And then on the seventh day, he took a rest to be an example to us. Because he was tired? No. Because he wanted us to be like him. He identifies with us. He's training us by example. And so all of that said, Jude looked at himself as not a brother of Jesus Christ. He said, I am a bond slave of Jesus and I am a brother of James. So we look at this scripture, and it says, Jude, a bondservant of Jesus, and a brother of James. So a bondservant, we talked about that, and then a brother of James. If you look at Mark chapter 6, verse 3, I just read it through this week, and if you look there, you'll actually see that at the time, uh, because everyone around him knew who his family was, he did have brothers, by the way. They knew his family, so when he said that he was the son of God, they said, well, that's impossible because all your brothers, you got brothers. And on top of that, we know who your dad is. And on top of that, we know you're just a carpenter. You can't be the son of God. You're a carpenter. Uh, John chapter 7, verse 1 through 5. Um, I'm going to turn there. We see um, Jesus... In verse 1 through 5, it says there about his brothers, he says, verse 1, after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, 
for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. He was avoiding the dark alleys. And so now the Jews' feast of tabernacles was at hand, and his brothers, therefore, said to him, Depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world, for even his brothers did not believe in him. He says, you, you claim to be the son of God. If you wanted to make yourself known, you would do these deeds in front of everybody, and yet you're doing them when no one's looking. What's the deal with that? Well, he didn't want his own testimony to show everybody. He wanted to do the works that the father sent him to do and let those that had been affected by the works that he did go and testify of themselves. And so they were saying, hey, if, you, if you're really the son of God, you're not going to hide. You're going to go do these things out openly. And so his brothers, because of this, did not believe in Jesus being the son of God. Can you imagine being the brother of the son of God? He lives in your house. He won't ever get involved in the fights or the rivalry. I don't know if he was a tattletale. I don't think he probably was, but you know, it's just an interesting thought to think about. Lucy's our tattletale. If there's something that needs to be reported, she comes into the room, hey, so-and-so's doing this. Okay. You know, so later I staged it. I sent Kelly into the kitchen and I said, hey, go stand in there. And so she stood in there and I go, hey, Kelly, um, Lucy's tattling on everybody. (laughs) She like frowned and looked at me and I go, it's not very fun when people are always tattling on every little thing, is it? But I don't think Jesus was probably even involved in that. He's just doing his own thing, which is annoying if you want everybody to be fighting. I mean, like the one good kid. But anyway, so the disciples, interestingly enough, and, and especially his brothers, it seems to me as, as the New Testament plays out, they, his whole life they don't believe in him. And they don't believe in him all the way up to the crucifixion. And he dies. And it seems to me that all of a sudden they show back up on the scene after the resurrection. And if you look at Acts chapter 1, verse 12 through 14, They're actually named among those who are waiting in the upper room, as Jesus told them to, for the sending of the Holy Spirit that would empower them to fulfill the Great Commission. So maybe they didn't believe in him while he was alive, but after the resurrection and he revealed himself to them, they were like, okay. So then they hang out with the disciples. They're praying in this prayer meeting in the upper room, and when the mighty wind rushes in and the Spirit is poured out upon the leaders of the church, they're in that number. They're with them. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5, we also find that the brothers are with the apostles. And if you want to look on your own time, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 7, you also see James among the brethren. This is Jude's brother that he's just mentioned. This, I'm, I'm the brother of James. Interestingly enough, he also penned the New Testament letter of James. When you think about James, I don't know if you, many of you spend time in the book of James, it's kind of one, it's like the Proverbs of the New Testament. And he's hard hitting. He doesn't spend a lot of time with flowery words. He just gets straight to the point. He says things like, if you say you have, you know, what, uh, what is it? he says, faith without works is dead. If you say you have faith and you don't have works, I'll prove my faith by my works. He doesn't mince words. And so, uh, interestingly enough, another brother of Jesus But his entire lifetime that Jesus was on this earth testifying of the Father, James wanted nothing to do with Jesus. He thought he was a false teacher. So here's the purpose of the letter. Chapter, or verse 1, part B. 
He says, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Those who are called by God, those who are sanctified by God, and those who are preserved in Jesus Christ. That's interesting that he lists those three things because I think a lot of the time, ministries and churches specifically spend the bulk of their time calling people to salvation, which is, by the way, a work that the church is supposed to do, to go out and make disciples of all nations. But I think sometimes we stop at making conversions. We go out, share the gospel, people get saved, and then they don't, they're never taught how to walk in a relationship with Jesus. They're only taught how they can be saved. And maybe you, some of you have had that same exa- um, example or that same experience where you go to church and every week it's a message about salvation. And in the meantime, everybody's been there for 60 years. They've heard the message a thousand times. They're saved. They're trying to figure out how am I supposed to walk this out? What does that look like daily? And so that's why we teach the scriptures cover to cover because the whole Bible makes us mature, just like a well-balanced meal. And so he says, those who are called by God, and in Mark chapter 3, verse 13 and 14, it says that Jesus, after spending an entire night in prayer, he actually got up the next day and he called the disciples to be with him and to be sent by them as apostles. And as believers, we weren't just called to be saved and get our ticket punched to heaven. We were called to spend time with Jesus and then as, after, as a fruit of the time we've spent with him, we're actually called to be sent by Jesus into the world. So if you've ever found yourself where you're constantly, every time you look around, you're just surrounded by Christians, we should be sent out among the non-believers, not stuck in our holy huddle. And so many times we long for more time with other believers, but sometimes we do need that, but sometimes we need to realize that God sent us to be among non-believers so that we can impact the world and not be impacted by the world. That's why we need to come back after we spent time in the world to be with Jesus people, to be with Jesus daily. And then also he says those who are sanctified by God. Now I'm going to turn you to a familiar passage in Romans chapter 8 verse 28. Many of you will be able to quote this verse to me, which is good. Memorizing scripture is healthy and happy and and it can actually be nourishing to you even when you're not sitting down reading your Bible something you can chew on. But he says there, this very familiar verse, he says, we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. We've already read in verse one, he's writing to those who are called by God, right? Well, what is his purpose? Well, it says there in verse 29 of Romans 8, for whom he foreknew... By the way, God knew you before your mother conceived you in her womb. He foreknew you. He's called you. He's chosen you to be an heir of this salvation. But then it says he also predestined for this purpose, to be conformed into the image of his son Jesus. So when you read Romans 8.28 and it says we know that all things work together for good, it's important that we define what good is. Good is being conformed into the image of the only good one. A man came to Jesus one time and he says, good teacher, how may I inherit eternal life? And Jesus rebuked him slightly and said, why do you call me good? There is only one who is good. Who? God the Father. 
Now, Jesus is the direct image of God, but the point is, he has chosen us and called us to be conformed to the image of his son. And if your faith has not grown you to a point where you are being changed into the image of Jesus, then it's not faith in God, it's faith in something else. Because God's purpose for you as a believer is not just to get you to heaven, it's to get you to heaven looking like Jesus. So that the world along the way as you're headed there will see Jesus and follow you as you follow the way, the truth, and the life. So then um, he goes on to say to those who are called by God, those who are sanctified by God, and those who are preserved in Jesus Christ. How many of you preserve jams and jellies and stuff from your garden? Okay, not many of you. I don't either. It's a lot of work. It's days of work. But in order to make good jelly or preserves, one time I mistaked uh, preserves for jelly, and it's really hard to spread what I thought was strawberry jelly, which actually preserved um, it was kind of like jam, but jelly, but it had the, the, the full-size strawberries in there. I wondered why it was so cheaper. It was when I was in college, and, it, and it, it, I just went to spread it, and I was like, this is ridiculous. But anyway, I don't know what you're supposed to use preserves for, but they're really tasty. Anyway, <laughs> he's preserved us in Jesus Christ, so you don't have to keep your own salvation. God is able to keep you in salvation, but we have to remain in him. People always ask me, do I believe in once saved, always saved? And that's a doctrine that is taught. I do not believe that that is a biblical doctrine, though it has some truth in it. I believe that God keeps those whom he saves as long as we who are saved abide in him. Just like if you go outside and you say, will you keep me dry umbrella? The umbrella would say to you, if it could talk, as long as you will stay under me right? My umbrella didn't keep me dry. Did you not hold it up? You know, if it broke, that's a totally different deal. If you get one of those cheapos that when the wind blows, it goes backwards, that's a totally different deal. But my point is that God keeps us as long as we remain in him for his purposes. And so that said, he says he's writing to those who are called by God, those who are sanctified or set apart for his use, and those who are preserved in Jesus Christ. So then he expresses a blessing to them. He says in verse 2, Beloved, while I was very, excuse me, verse 2, Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Mercy is that compassion that is experienced as we are in the love of God, and we recognize all the stuff that he has done for us in the cross, and the way that he lived, and the way he's showing us to live. But also in the peace of God, and then the love that he has shown to us may it be multiplied to you. So verse 3, he goes on and he expresses his purpose for writing to us. He writes to us concerning our common salvation. Our common salvation. But then I want to point out where he says he's going to write to us concerning our common salvation, that he's not calling it common this salvation that we have is not ordinary. It's amazing. It's unlike anything that is offered by the world. It's complete. But the word here actually means shared or mutual. So he says, I was going to be diligent to, you, to write to you concerning our common salvation, the salvation that we all share in Jesus Christ. 
But I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. And here's the reason. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our Lord into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So he says, I've written to you, and I was going to write about salvation, but I stopped short, and I'm writing to you that you contend for the faith. The word exhort means to strongly encourage. If you want to see a good exhorter, find one of those guys that's screaming at the top of his lungs with a hanky, and he's wiping the sweat from his brow, and he's going for it. You're not going to find me doing that very often. I'm just, it's just not my personality. Now, I do get worked up. Usually it's about something that's silly or me telling one of my goofy stories. But my point is, he says, I want to strongly encourage you to contend for the faith. Why? Because there are those that creep into the church. Don't worry about those people that come in and obviously have goofy, ungodly ideas. Everyone else will be able to tell. It's the ones who sneak in creepily and unnoticed, and they teach things that seem really close to the truth, but they're missing a piece. And so he says, contend for the faith. What does contend mean? It means to strive or vie in contest or rivalry or against all odds, against difficulties. And we love the movies where that happens, right? To contend. Think about Saving Private Ryan. It's an intense movie. He's contending for this man that was lost behind enemy lines or this group. So he goes through, he contends against all difficulties. He does everything to get the people that are behind the lines to bring them back out. But also contend means to maintain. Maintain your faith. Do everything that you can to build up your faith. The purpose of us gathering can be found in Ephesians 4 where he talks about the purpose of the church is actually to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. To, to train us up so that we will be ready for the day of adversity. And what, what is the day of adversity? Every day. Everything in this life is trying to erode away what you believe about Jesus. Everything that's placed in movies that even just talks haphazardly or vainly about Jesus to devalue his, the, 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 just hearing his name in culture is there on purpose to make you think less and less and less. You ever hear a word enough times? You ever hear that person that says that they're praying about something, but the way that they say it, you can tell it's just something they say. It doesn't mean anything anymore to them. They're just, they say it, and you can just tell by the inflection in their voice that it's literally just words. But then when someone tells you they're going to pray for you and you know you're getting ready to have your name lifted into the heavenlies and, it, and God then can hear and make a difference. I don't know how he works and why he does it that way, but he wants to interact. But my point is contending, being ready for the fight, to stop fighting one another and start fighting the enemy of our souls from our knees. We don't battle against principalities and powers uh, that are people. Our battle is not against flesh and blood, but it's actually against principalities and powers of the rulers of the darkness of this age. The age that we live in, we're not in the kingdom of God yet. It has come and it lives within us. But the kingdom of God 
When he sets up his throne, there will be no more contending for the faith. There will be us obeying Jesus Christ and his lordship. But right now, Satan's in control. This is his world, and he will do anything he can to beat you down and to cause you to stop trying. And anytime you stick your head out of the foxhole and start to try to take some ground in your life or in your family, in your home, or at work, you're going to take pot shots just like you would in the military. You stick your head above that, all of a sudden there's a little pew, sniper fire contending with the fiery darts of the enemy. Satan wants you to be discouraged. He wants you to give up. He wants you to move on with life and just be happy with the things that the world offers. But we have a new purpose. So, as we go on to verse 5, he says, but I want to remind you you know, we've talked about this spiritual warfare that's going on. We've talked about this battle that's going on that we can't see necessarily. He says, but I want to remind you, verse 5, though you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So he ta- he's going to talk about how God is able to fight this battle. Now, he's talking about these certain men. I skipped the part in verse 4. These are called apostates. Uh, the word apostasy means the act of turning away from God. These are many times people that at one point had a walk with the Lord that caused them to live differently than the world, and yet at some point something got tweaked and their focus got off of Jesus and onto what they could get under the banner of Jesus. So these apostates are those who have turned away from God and they creep in unnoticed. I call them creepers. You know, there are creepers, and then there are people who are creepy. These are the creepers. These are the the guys that show up, and they want to date your daughter, and you're like, "Uh uh-uh, you get the heebie-jeebies just looking at them. These are the creepers, and the main reason he's warning them is because they are unnoticed. I'm not worried about the people that come in and are obviously, they got some hitches in their giddy-up. I'm concerned about those who creep in, and they're wolves in sheep's clothing. And so they are ungodly. And he says they're marked for God's righteous judgment. They're cursed. Um, They're cursed because of their own disobedience. They're cursed because of their rejection of God's authority. But they turn God's grace into lewdness. They turn God's grace, his, his patience with us, into a license to go out and sin. Hey, God didn't strike me down today. He must be okay with me doing this. The word lewdness actually means crude and offensive, specifically in a sexual way. So these teachers would come into the church and they'd be living for the flesh. They'd come in and go, I can have several wives and I could sleep around and I can go to the temple and all these other temples and get with prostitutes. And, and that, I mean, it appeals to the flesh because the Bible even teaches that sin is pleasurable for a season until it enslaves you. And then you bear the consequences of that sin. So they would come in and they they would turn God's grace into license to be lewd and to live in a lewd lifestyle. They live as if God's grace sets them free to sin rather than to set them free from sin. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost and to set us free not only from the consequences and the judgment of our sin, but to set us free from the power of sin. With the Holy Spirit, we have the ability to say, no, I ain't going to do it. Wouldn't be prudent. 
You know, I'm not going to do that. I cannot do this to sin against my God. Not because my parents don't want me to do it. Not because my teachers don't want me to do it. But when nobody's looking, the only thing that will keep you from sin is wanting to please God. And the only thing that will give you the power to say no to sin will be God's presence living within you, convicting you. So God's grace actually sets us free from guilt of sin and the power of sin. And as we studied in 3 John, these certain men, these creepers, they want to be preeminent. They want to have the final say. They want to make themselves Lord over their own lives rather than letting Jesus be Lord. And I tell you what, if you want to create some problems in your life and in the lives of those that are in your household, you just take control and say, hey, Jesus, I got this. I don't need you. You will wreck your whole family. You'll wreck your future family. It will be a windstorm of problems. So Peter told and warned about the same thing within the church. Second Peter chapter 1. Peter writes very similarly in chapter 1 uh, in verse, let me see, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 1. He says, Simon Peter, a bond, excuse me, that should be chapter 2, verse 1. Strike that from the record. I never made a mistake. Second Peter 2. Uh, he says, But there were also false prophets among you people, even as there will be false teachers among you later, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies or doctrines, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. Many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. God's going to judge these people. And so it's interesting, he says in there, because of these destructive heresies, many will follow them. And because of that, the way or Jesus and the people that follow him will be blasphemed. They'll be spoken ill against. And if you look at the state of the church today, it's not so much the people that obey Jesus that cause us to be persecuted for craziness. It's actually those who have believed lies about what Jesus taught and twist Jesus' words and live in these ways that are obviously contrary to sound doctrine, and they cause the church as a whole to be blasphemed. And so something to consider is that when someone teaches us something, and I would include myself, Test it against what Scripture teaches, because I am not infallible. I can twist things and not even realize it. Now, the Lord's very faithful to correct me, but all I'm saying is, if I teach you something and there's a little, like, a little twinge, you're like, I don't know about that. Search the Scriptures and see if it's so. It will be healthy for you, and it will be healthy for me, because I need to be corrected when I'm in error. So I don't create this wave of destruction in our own church body household. And so now on to verse 5. And we'll kind of get through this quickly and hopefully you'll realize that as we look at these examples he's going to give, he's going to give examples of certain men and their character attributes by using Old Testament examples. So if you've ever read the Old Testament and you've kind of chewed on some of these stories what you'll realize is as you read Jude, he it, very quickly in this letter that could have been written on a sheet of eight and a half by 11 paper, he's going to make some assertions 
And he's going to draw some conclusions from these stories. But he's writing to believers that have a very adept understanding of the Old Testament. They haven't just glanced at it. They've spent their life reading it. And so if you feel like he just rushes over these stories, the reality is he does so because of his audience being very aware of what these stories had to say. And so he says, but I want to remind you, though you once knew this in the past tense, that the Lord, having saved the people of the land of Egypt, he afterward destroyed those who did not believe. He's talking about the 400 years that the Israelites were in slavery to Egypt. And then Moses is sent back in, there's way more to the story, to deliver them out of Egypt, the land of bondage. And as he delivers them out, there are so many great miracles that take place. There's the plagues, then there's the Passover instituted, then there's the angel of death that passes over, another plague on the firstborn in each household. And as they're delivered out, they get out in the wilderness, they got all the stuff that they got to take from the Egyptians, gold and cattle and all these things, provisions for the journey, and they get to a place called the Red Sea. And they ain't got no boat. They don't have any way to cross over. They're not going to ford the river. It is a sea. And as they get there, the Lord parts the sea and they walk across on dry land. Now, the people that saw that, after they crossed, God said, I'm going to take you into the land that I promised to your father Abraham. And they said, I don't know. Let's send some people in to spy it out. So they sent 12 spies, one for each of the tribes. They go into the land and they find in there, there's these grapes that are so big, they carry them out on their shoulders, hanging from sticks, these clusters of grapes. And then they go in there and they, but what they also find is that there's honey everywhere. And there's milk from date trees, not milk like cattle milk, but there's dates growing in this land. This is a fruitful land. So this land is not the desert they've been living in. It's not Egypt that they've been living in by the well-watered Nile region valley. It's actually this well-watered place. So they go in and all these great things are there, but you know what else is there? Giants. These huge people that are going to, we can't fight them. They weren't a warring culture. They were shepherds. So they're going, okay, God's going to give us this land, but these guys are too big. We can't fight them. What are we going to do? But God said, I'm going to give you the land. That has to be enough. Because if we lean on our own understanding, we will talk ourselves out of every promise that God's given us. I know God said, but look how tall they are. I know God said, but look how low my checkbook is. I know God said, but I got this, this, and this to do. We can explain away anything if we're not careful. And what we find out is they partook in the deliverance miraculously from the land. They saw all the plagues. They saw God bring them through the Red Sea. And yet when God said, I'm going to take you into the land, those spies came back and go, we can't do it. There was two guys that said they could do it. Really three, Moses, Joshua, and Caleb. And because of their unbelief, they wandered around in this desert, in the Sinai, for 40 years as a judgment until that entire generation that had unbelief died in the wilderness, never obtaining the promises of God. But the beauty is, that didn't mean the next generation didn't get to go. They just had to wait. So as they grew up, that's why we have Deuteronomy. If you ever wondered why there's the book of the law, Leviticus, and then there's Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy is the retelling of the same law to another generation. 
as he teaches them and as they get ready to go into the land, guess who gets to lead the charge? Joshua and Caleb. Guess how old they are? 80. 80. But they waited, and what we find out is that Caleb believed the promise, and he continued to believe the promise. And as everybody else died, he said, I'm still going to go in, and I want the hardest piece of ground to take. Give me the rough land in the top. I'll go conquer it. I love that heart of faith. And so I've spent way too much time on that example, but my point is those who saw and partook in God's deliverance perished before they obtained the land that God promised to them because they did not continue to trust him. They didn't continue. We have to continue in the faith. Numbers 13 and 14, we see that Moses, Joshua, and Caleb believed. They doubted God's motives and his ability to save, and they wandered and they died. Verse 6, the fallen angels, and there's so much behind this, but in verse 6, he goes on to say, the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he reserved in everlasting chains unto darkness for the judgment of the great day. He says, these angels that didn't keep within the, under the authority of God are chained for judgment one day. We might call them demons. These are the fallen angels that followed Lucifer that are mentioned in Revelation. You read about it in Isaiah and Ezekiel as well. But they did not keep their proper domain. They didn't know their role and shut their hole and stay underneath God's authority. So in verse 6, we see that they left where they were supposed to be to follow someone else who wanted to be God. And what's funny is in 2 Peter chapter 2 again, we see in verse 4 that Peter actually mentioned this in the same topic. He's writing about the same thing. In verse 4, Peter writes, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment and did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing the flood on the world of the ungodly and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ash heaps, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly, And he delivered righteous Lot, which was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. And it goes on and on and on. But in verse 9, he says, Then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation. And he knows how to reserve the ungodly under punishment for the day of judgment. So the point being that it may seem insurmountable that these false teachers come in and they teach all these ungodly things. But he says, contend for the faith. Maintain your faith because God has proven himself in the past to be able to deliver the the godly through the most wicked times, but he's also able to reserve unto judgment those who deserve it. Vengeance is the Lord's, and if we will just continue to trust him, even when times get dark, he is able to preserve the godly. And I say that, taking a little bit of liberty right now, to say this. If the president that you like doesn't get voted in and times get dark for evangelicals, God is still able to preserve his people, whether the political climate agrees with that or not. So we're not called to follow Jesus as long as it is culturally acceptable. We're called to follow Jesus. And if you look at all the apostles that followed before us, Rome was way worse than we are under the worst ungodly uh, administration. There are nations right now 
that if you are a believer, they will chop your stinking head off and not even blink. And no one, no outcry, no people jumping up. Oh, we got to, you know, there are some that get noticed on the news, but for the most part, nobody stinking gives a rip. But we're not following Jesus because people give a rip. We're following him because he's the one that saved our souls and he's worthy of our obedience. He's worthy of our trust. And no matter what comes our way in this life, he will keep us for eternity because that's where our hope is in. And so just to read the last few verses and touch again, or the last verse, verse seven, and touch again on Sodom as Peter did. He says, as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh are set forth as an example, the same thing Peter said, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. They're an example of God's very real judgment that is to come on the ungodly. So, all that said, how does God deal with his enemies? The Bible says an enemy of God, according to James chapter 4, 4, is someone who decides he's going to be a friend with the world. And that's what these false teachers did. They decided, you know what, it's way too hard to be a friend of God. I'm going to be friends with the world. I'm going to just take all that it has to give me. And 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 says that um, their end is destruction. And I'm going to turn there since it's just a book over. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15 says this, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that's in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, the desire to feel good, the desire to be good in the eyes of others, and the pride of life, the, the desire to, to be good in my own eyes. It's not of the Father, but it's of the world. And the world, guess what? It's passing away. It's all going to burn. And so is the desire for it. But he who does the will of God will remain, will abide forever. Israel's sin, unbelief. The angel's sin, rebellion against God's lordship. Sodom and Gomorrah's sin, guess what? They had it so comfortable because they lived in the well-watered plains, they had free time on their hand. All of a sudden, they didn't have to spend all their time making all their crops survive so they could have food in their mouth. They had free time. So they used that free time to indulge in the flesh. And so when they got tired of regular sexual pleasure, they went looking for it elsewhere. And when they found, you know, even in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, what happened, the angel showed up in town. And you remember this story, maybe you've read it recently in Genesis, where all of a, we just read it this week in version, where it, these guys show up in town. Lot says, why don't you come stay with me? It's not really safe out in the public square. And as soon as he shuts the door, all the men of the city come to his door and they say, hey, bring those guys out so that we can know them sexually. It doesn't mince words. It says, we want to have sex with them. They were interested in something new because all of a sudden the normal didn't pleasure them anymore. And so they, they, their sin was they indulged in that unnatural lust. And I know that many of us read that this week and we were just, oh my gosh. But is our culture really any different? That's what's going on in our culture today in the most free nation, the most clean looking nation. But if you really look what's going on in the dark, that's actually kind of G-rated compared to our culture and so, what's the solution? Well, guess what? Sunday school answer, faith in Jesus. 
Jesus. That's the answer. John chapter 1 says this, and we'll close. You can take a picture, write down the rest, because I'm not going to cover it. But in John chapter 1, he says this. John chapter 1, verse 10. Jesus was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And if you are born of God, he takes care of and he keeps those. Romans 8 says, what's, what's able to separate us from the love of God? And he makes this big laundry list. And basically he's saying nothing can keep us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. He's able to reserve the ungodly for judgment. He's able to keep you in the love of God. So, Father, thank you for pointing out to us through the book of Jude that there are those who will creep in who will speak out of their own lust for pleasure, who will desire um, what the world has to give versus what you have to give, and then they'll call themselves disciples of Jesus. Father, help us to have eyes to see who is and who ain't. Help us to be able to discern between the teaching of Jesus and the way of Jesus and the way that really leads to destruction, the way of the flesh. Lord, we need you in this because we live in dark times, but we also know that you are able to keep those who trust you. So Father, help us to remain under the umbrella of your love. Help us to remain in the love of God as much as depends upon us. Lord, we need you in this. We trust you for this. We pray. We believe. And in the moments where we struggle, help our unbelief. We pray and ask, Lord, all of this because we want to glorify your name. In Jesus' name, amen.